You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. start this morning talking about the power of story. And the truth is, there may be nothing that affects us quite like stories. I mean, if you think about it, oftentimes all you need to hear is the opening words of a really good story, and you're almost immediately immersed into that story. I'll give you a couple of my favorite examples. Um, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right there, I got goosebumps, just saying it myself. I even knew I was going to say it. It's in my notes. It's all it takes, and I'm immediately immersed. And here's another one I love. In a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. And arguably, the most famous of all opening words to any story are these words, once upon a time. Now, at the risk of demystifying their power a little bit, uh, I was reading a bit about the effect of stories on us this week. And it turns out there are both neurological and chemical reasons why stories have the effect on us that they do. When, when we are just being fed facts, okay, so you imagine sitting in a classroom just being fed facts. When that's happening, there are only two areas of your brain that light up. The first is our language processing, and then the second is our comprehension. But when you're listening to a story, Those same two parts of your brain light up, but also your motor cortex, your emotion and visual image processing centers, you're imagining sensations, and you are processing emotional reactions. So in short, more of our brain lights up and goes to work when we are listening to a story as opposed to facts. Now, in addition to that, an interesting thing happens when we listen to stories and that our brains release oxytocin which is the bonding hormone that causes empathy. So I had a really obvious uh, experience of this this week. The other night, Tammy and I uh, were laying in bed with our daughter, Ava, and we were watching uh, The Walking Dead. She's 14. Don't judge my parenting. It's a great show. Uh, Now, I won't, won't, if you haven't seen it yet, first of all, it's been out a long time, but uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but in this particular episode, a very beloved character dies. And as this character is dying, they are surrounded by their friends and their family. And and as we watch this scene play out, and we listen to this just gut-wrenching dialogue between these characters and, 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 and got to, in a sense, experience the immense grief that they were experiencing, Tammy, Ava, and I, all of us, like I'm surprised that our bed was not wet. We were crying so hard watching this whole thing unfold. There's just simply nothing that affects us quite like stories. And I have to think that this is why Jesus used story as one of his primary teaching tools. A full 35% of Jesus' teaching in the Synoptic Gospels, and the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 35% of everything Jesus teaches in Matthew, Mark, and Luke comes to us in story form called parable. Now, the technical definition of a parable is something that is placed alongside of something else for the purpose of, of, of clarification. And the New Testament actually contains upwards of 60 parables, 
depending on how one defines what is a parable and what isn't. But upwards of 60 parables in which Jesus paints these pictures of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. And if you think about why, I think that Jesus knows that people's confidence in what we think we know is so calcified that we needed these subversive stories to get around everything we think we know. Father Thomas Keating uh, wrote this short book of sermons uh, on the topic of parable, and he says this. He says, the parables are earthquakes shaking the ground from under our presuppositions and prepackaged values in order that a few cracks in the sidewalk might appear, enabling some of the seed to fall in between the cracks and produce at least a few weeds. So as a community, our desire is to truly devote ourselves to the way of Jesus together. And so this year, that looks like us trying to take even another step forward in trying to order our lives around the teaching of Jesus. But the problem is, oftentimes, we are so certain in our own minds of what the way of Jesus looks like. And as a result of that, we need Jesus to tell us these stories again, because no matter how careful we are, it is inevitable that we, we come to Scripture with presuppositions that, in fact, end up being untrue. And so we live in this rhythm of thinking we know one thing, coming to the Scriptures and hearing from Jesus, finding out we were, in fact, wrong, and then bending our lives in the ways that Jesus invites us to. And so to that end, I want to invite you to open your Bibles or the app, whatever you read on, and turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we invite Jesus to tell us the story of four soils. The story of four soils, Matthew 13. Now, let me just start by explaining um, why I think it's fitting to begin a series with this particular parable. Because the truth is, to decide where to start, I'm only going to teach nine in total. Um, Picking nine out of 60 is no small feat. And so I think there's an, uh, an even deeper question of, like, where do we even start? We have 60 parables. Jesus would not have taught them if they did not matter. They would not have been recorded in Scripture if they did not matter, so where do we start? Why start with Matthew 13? Well, in short, I believe that it plays a foundational role in all three of those synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Even Mark's Gospel, which actually only contains four parables because Mark wrote with an eye toward action. He wanted us to see the narrative story of Jesus' life and ministry moving forward, so it doesn't contain an immense amount of teaching, but even Mark put this parable in his gospel. It is the only parable where all three gospels record Jesus saying at the end, let anyone who has ears listen. So listening is the dominant theme in this parable. In Mark's account, the word listen or hear in Greek appears 13 times. In Luke, it appears nine times. And here in Matthew, it appears 15 times. So it seems to me to be a a fitting place to start a series on the story of Jesus with an invitation to listen. And so to that end, listen to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, which would have been the Sea of Galilee. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, while the whole crowd stood on the shore. So what we start with here is the setting. Jesus is teaching. And he's surrounded by so many people that he had to have the disciples put a boat into the Sea of Galilee so that he could be pushed back off the shore and continue to teach. Now, the exact location isn't specified here in the text, but most commentators believe 
that this story took place at a, this natural amphitheater of sorts that is now called the Bay of Parables, which there's a picture on the screen of that. Uh, Israeli scientists have verified that the human voice can easily transmit to thousands of people on shore from this location. And so this would have been a common place where teaching took place, and this is most likely the setting that Jesus is in when all of this happens. So even, even though the listening crowds didn't understand everything he taught, their attention was captivated by Jesus, largely because of stories like this. Look at verse 2, or 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. So Jesus paints this picture that would have been very familiar for everyone listening. He paints a picture of a farmer scattering seed on the ground. Now, a field would have been plowed in rows to depths of about two to three inches, and then a farmer would walk up and down those rows and very carefully scatter seed into them before plowing it again to cover over that seed that, that he had just planted. Now, farming in this region was not and is not easy in any way. The soil is largely rocky, and so farming was a lot of work, and it often resulted in very little return. And, and, and this is one thing, I think, that, that makes Jesus' story a little odd right out of the chute. We may not think about it as we read it, but the people listening would have been like, this guy's doing what? Because farmers were very frugal, and they knew, like, farming is, is not an easy task. It doesn't go great for us, and so they were very meticulous in how they cast seed. But the farmer in Jesus' story just seems to be, like, scattering seed freely. And so the people listening to this story would have been at best confused, maybe even appalled, at how wasteful this farmer appears to them. But regardless of that, Jesus describes four types of soil. Some falls on a hard path. So the seed couldn't get into the soil, and as a result, that seed was an easy target for hungry birds. Some fell on rocky ground and dies despite initial growth. Some falls in thorny soil that chokes it out and kills the seed, and then some finally falls on receptive and healthy soil and bears this incredible harvest. And so I don't know about you, but I, I think about that picture in the Bay of Parables and Jesus on this boat, and I just picture this massive, hushed crowd Everyone pulled forward, hanging on every word of this masterful storyteller. And then Jesus finishes this parable and he says, let anyone who has ears listen. And I just imagine the collective response of this group of people being, wait, what is the point of all of this? Which tends to be the way that these people responded to Jesus' parables all the time. So look at verse 10. It says, then the disciples came up and they asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see and hearing they do not listen or understand. 
Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. So, I want to unpack that a little bit because at first reading, it can seem very, very confusing. So understand, the disciples don't, they don't get why Jesus is telling stories. But to their credit, they're marked by this humble desire to listen and understand, and so they ask Jesus. And it's important that we really think about what it is that Jesus says here, because if you, there's a couple of different ways to read it. One way to read it looks like Jesus is telling stories in order to confound people, which seems kind of crappy as a teacher to intentionally teach in a way that leaves people, people baffled. I've taught for 20 years now. That's not a great strategy. People don't love that. So I find it very hard to believe, and I just absolutely reject the notion that that is what Jesus' intent was, was he was trying to confound people through these stories. Now, I think what really matters is we have to understand this one verse where Jesus says, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know but it has not been given to them. I think that phrase, secrets of the kingdom, is really important for us to understand because it's it's important that we get in our heads that Jesus isn't starting some kind of like Christian version of the Illuminati where he's, he's trying to like lead with secrets and conspiracies and all these weird things. The Greek word that we translate here as secret just means a knowledge that can't be attained by natural means. And so what it tells us is the disciples didn't understand differently than the crowd did because they were intellectually superior. They understood differently because by God's grace, they had the humility to open their hearts and surrender to the message of Jesus. And by and large, at this point, the crowd had not done that yet. And so the crowd, uh, as a result, their response to these parables confirms the state of their hearts. So those with open hearts to the message of Jesus, receive a deeper understanding of the kingdom. And those with hearts that are not receptive are confirmed in their disbelief. And so this is why Jesus points to the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. He is signaling that what's happening here is not like a new thing. This is an age-old problem that plagued Israel, where the prophets would call out and call out and call out, and the people would harden their hearts and harden their hearts harden their hearts until life got so bad for them that they would cry out for mercy, and every time God meets them in in that place. So that's what Jesus is describing here. But look at verse 18. Jesus goes on, he says, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and it's short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word. 
who does produce fruit and yields, some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. So notice how each one of these soils pictures an obstacle that keeps Jesus' words from bearing the most fruit in our hearts. First, there is a, a hard heart that provides an opportunity for our spiritual enemy to steal anything that Jesus would say. Secondly, there is a, a lack of depth of character that helps us endure difficulty and instead insists on the path of least resistance. Third, we have this preoccupation with the values of the world rather than the values of Jesus. Now, each of those three is worthy of our contemplation. I would continue, uh, I would encourage you to, to continue sitting with God this week and ask him, which one of those am I most vulnerable to right now? But rather than get lost in the proverbial weeds of these three soils, I want to stay focused on Jesus' general point. And the general point is this, the soils are a picture of our heart's response to the words of Jesus. So generally speaking, we see a picture of two very different postures of the heart toward the words of Jesus. One is unreceptive. We see that in the three soils. And the other is receptive. And so I would argue the most important question for us to sit with may just be, what are the differing elements that make up a receptive versus an unreceptive heart to the words of Jesus? And so I want to show you three parts that I think we see uh, in these verses. The first one is this. Notice, the unreceptive heart is hardened by pride, but the receptive heart is tenderized by humility. So in, in James chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, listen to what James says. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, I, I think that this should serve as one of the most helpful texts for life with God because there's such clear instruction for how to position one's heart to receive from God. It's very, very simple. Pride results in resistance, and humility results in grace. So pride results in resistance, humility results in grace. Anytime we function from a place of pride, God actively, overtly resists us. And the reason for that is that pride poisons the soul. Martin Luther once wrote that pride is the mother of all sin. It was the sin in the garden. It's the sin beneath the vast majority of sin and brokenness in all of our lives. And so as a result of it, God looks at pride and goes, that's bad for you. And so when you function in that, I'm going to resist that in you. So pride results in resistance and humility results in grace. That being said, we have a bad habit, I've found, of understanding humility as a feeling and we miss the fact that it's far more about action, which is why James follows this whole statement about God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble with this simple phrase, submit to God. Notice James never says, I'm actually not aware of a place in the whole Bible that says feel humble. Humility is something we do. It is putting ourselves beneath the authority of God at all times. 
See, the problem with pride is that pride positions us as a juror who judges what God says. That's what pride does to us. I don't know about you, I've only been called for jury duty one time in my life, thank God. It was when we lived in Chicago. And then I remember being there all day long, and they finally called us in, and I, we went into the courtroom, and they ushered us all into these jur- the juror's box and then explained the basics of the case. And I had this kind of weird conflict in me at the time, because on the one hand, uh, I was pastoring a small church like this, and I was afraid this case might go on for a long time. And I was like, I don't know how, who's going to teach? I'm, that's always what I'm thinking about. Who's going to teach? And so I was like, well, I don't really want this to go on. But on the other hand, I went into college thinking that I was going to go to law school. And so I, there was a point in time I really wanted to be an attorney. So I walk into this courtroom, and I was like, oh, this, this is going to be awesome. Okay? Like, what if, what if it's like the, the Scranton Strangler? Okay? Like, what if, it, what if it's just some big, crazy case? Well, it turns out uh, someone fell at a roller skating rink and was suing. So it was just dumb waste of everyone's time that was there. But we're sitting in the juror's box. The judge informed us of our role. So we were to listen, and then we were to make a determination about what had happened. And so when you are a juror, you are put in a position of authority. And that is how pride positions us with the words of Jesus. Pride says, I'll be the judge of whether or not something Jesus says is good and right. And that was very much the attitude of the evil one in the garden in the Genesis story. He enticed Adam and Eve to come out from under the caring authority of God and instead to do what they deemed best. And that decision to deny God's loving authority resulted in so much destruction. As we continue, just just even in their own story, as you read about what happens with their sons, what happens in their family, all because of a decision that started with pride. And so here's the bottom line. Every time God speaks, every time he speaks, we are invited to tenderize our heart by humbly submitting to what he says. So the unreceptive heart is hardened by pride. But the receptive heart is tenderized by humility. Here's the second thing. The unreceptive heart is addicted to comfort, but the receptive heart is prepared for difficulty. Now, let me, let me show you another verse in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. It won't be on the screen. Just listen to this. The Apostle Paul says, uh, we rejoice in our afflictions. Now, just sit with that phrase for a second. And think about how bizarre that is. We rejoice in our afflictions. Now, it's an important phrase for us to think about because I find it pretty hard to believe that in Paul's mind was like every time we go through trial, every time life is hard, we're supposed to be like, this is awesome. I love this. I don't know what that was. That's why we don't video if you're wondering. It streams and then it just disappears into the ether, never to be seen again. But that's not, that's not what Paul's saying. But what he is saying is that there is something happening in affliction that is reason for us to rejoice. So he says, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this rocky ground in Jesus' story, it's a picture of a heart 
that is not prepared for difficulty. It lacks this proven character that Paul praises in Romans chapter 5. Instead, it demands to be comfortable above all else. And so let me just lay out for you what I've seen to be a pretty common scenario in people's hearts when it comes to life with God. Oftentimes, someone will hear the invitation to abundant life that Jesus offers, and they think, that sounds awesome, I'm in. But what they may ignore, or if they're sitting under some like bad, just imper- like just bad, I guess I would just call it, just bad teaching, they, they might ignore or be completely unprepared for the rest of what Jesus says. They might miss Jesus' promise that in this world, you will have troubles. They might miss the sobering invitation from Jesus to self-denial and daily cross-bearing. And this is so dangerous because when life with Jesus proves less than comfortable than they anticipated, I have seen person after person after person just walk away from God. Now, that is an extreme example, I know, that I, I don't think many of us in the room are probably at tremendous risk of. And so let's just bring this a little closer to our own experience. I think most of us live with something that I would call a curated faith, a curated faith. So about a year ago, uh, I switched from um, listening to music on Spotify to Apple Music. By and large, I like Apple Music so much better. But there's one thing I really, really miss about Spotify that Apple Music doesn't do. Every Friday morning with Spotify, I'd open up my app, and there was a playlist called the Release Radar that Spotify, on their own, had curated for me based on the artists that I listened to and the genres that that I consumed the most. And so what it did is it fed me more of what I wanted. Now, my point is, we may not all walk away from faith when we come up against something uncomfortable, but we are prone to ignore what makes us uncomfortable in favor of a curated faith. Meaning, we tend to gravitate toward the same portions of Scripture that comfort us, and we ignore ones that disrupt our comfort. And if you do that long enough, you end up developing an entire theological construct that you have curated for your own comfort. A little while back, Tim Keller said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. That doesn't feel great. Comfort and fruitfulness are rarely congruent. And so if we're going to truly receive the words of Jesus, we must be prepared for the difficulty that accompanies it. The difficulty sometimes of the words themselves or the difficulty that comes from living in the way of Jesus in a broken world. The unreceptive heart is addicted to comfort, but the receptive heart is prepared for difficulty. And then finally, notice this, the unreceptive heart is deceived by worldliness, but the receptive heart is positioned for holiness. So when Jesus compares the the third uh, soil to the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth, He's reminding us that there's always two competing value systems at play in life. Number one is the way of the world, and number two is the way of Jesus. I know that's a very binary way to think in our culture, but that's the message that we see from Jesus over and over again. There is the value system 
that is encapsulated by the world in the world, and there is the value system of Jesus. So discipleship is really just this lifelong process of learning to align our lives with the way of Jesus. And, and there's a way that that can be romanticized, and it sounds like so nice, but the truth is it's a really, really painful process because this stuff is deep in us. This morning I was thinking about this kid that Pastor Tyler and I went to high school with, and at one point he broke his arm, and uh, I don't even remember how it happened exactly. We were talking about it, and neither of us could remember. But this kid broke his arm, and so they put a cast on it. This kid had a, a more than a few screws loose. Um, but, and so he would sit. I just remember him sitting in class with his arm casted, and he would just bang it on his desk. I'd see him, like, walk by the lockers and just bang his cast on the wall. I mean, this went on for, like, how long do you wear a cast? Weeks at least, right? Just tink, tink, tink. And then I remember... He went to the doctor, so like, get my cast off, yay, comes back next day, cast right, cast still on. You know why? Because he did so much damage to his arm in the cast, they had to re-break his arm and then recast it so that it would heal properly. And I think that's discipleship. Jesus is doing this painful but healing work of breaking up what we think we know because we have spent so long drinking from the values of this world. And so Jesus breaks that all up so that we can embrace his way that leads to genuine flourishing. And so holiness, being set apart for God, that's what happens as we embrace what Jesus says. The unreceptive heart is deceived by worldliness, but the receptive heart is positioned for holiness. And so here's the big idea, I think, just generally speaking, that comes out of what it is that Jesus is trying to convey to us through this story. The ears to hear require a heart to receive. When Jesus talks about those who have ears to hear, he's not just the whole crowd heard what he said. People constantly are hearing what Jesus says, but hearing and understanding are not the same thing. And the understanding that Jesus calls for, the understanding that Jesus invites, is one that receives what it is that has been said, what it is that has been heard, and then adjusts life by God's grace accordingly. And so as we get ready to spend the next couple of months taking a fresh look at these stories, here are three decisions that will help us cultivate receptive hearts. Because if we're not going to receive what Jesus says, what is the point, truthfully? And so that's why we would start here. I think it would be a mistake to teach eight stories and then on the ninth one be like, by the way, hope you heard all that. So we start here. How do we cultivate? Because this doesn't just happen. So how do we cultivate the way that a farmer has to cultivate soil? How do we cultivate receptive hearts? Here's three, three decisions that need to be made. Number one, I will say yes to all Jesus asks. As you listen to these stories with fresh ears, Jesus is going to ask for some things from you. And humility is the decision to say yes. Number two, I will embrace every difficult invitation. And that means trusting Jesus for strength, waiting on him for strength, and enduring through difficulty that is inevitably going to come up 
over the course of this year. Some of us are in seasons marked by immense difficulty right now. Sometimes the invitation from Jesus is just endure. Keep going. He's with you in the midst of it. And then thirdly, I will align my life with the way of Jesus. I will align my life with the way of Jesus. So three decisions. I will say yes to all Jesus asks. I will embrace every difficult invitation. And then thirdly, I will align my life with the way of Jesus. Some things are going to surface through these stories that reveal dissonance between our lives and the way of Jesus. That's okay. That's the whole point of the stories, is to help us see the dissonance between those two things. And so when that happens, we are always left with a choice. Will we trust Jesus' goodness and wisdom by aligning our life around what he says? The ears to hear require a heart to receive. And so let's pray, and let's ask Jesus to cultivate receptive hearts within us. Hearts that are tenderized by humility, hearts that are prepared for difficulty, and hearts that are positioned for holiness. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are the farmer in this story. And, 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 and even right now, you are in this room with us, and you are casting spiritual seeds into our hearts. And Lord, some of it hopefully has been received, and some of it probably hasn't been. But Lord, we just ask that as we set out on this journey together, taking a fresh look at these stories from you, would you cultivate receptive hearts in us? Lord, we don't want to be like a listening crowd that is maybe consuming a good story, but it's having no effect because those hearts are not receptive to what it is that you are saying. Lord, we want to have open, receptive hearts. And we can't do that on our own. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your help. And so would you please do whatever you need to do to make our hearts open and receptive to what you want to say. We thank you that you love us enough not to just leave us to flounder on our own, but that you desire to speak to us. Lord, may we never take that for granted. God, would you help us to say yes to all you ask, to embrace even the most difficult of invitations, and to align our lives with your way. We thank you that we have one another to do that together. So we ask for your help. 